The Milan Records Sony Original Motion Picture soundtrack for the Spectre Vision Ace Pictures sci-fi thriller Color Out of Space features music written by Grammy Award-winning saxophonist, multi-instrumentalist, songwriter and composer Colin Stetson. A coveted saxophone collaborator to artists including Bon Iver, Arcade Fire, Tom Waits, LCD Sound System, and The National, Colin Stetson also has an expansive body of work that includes a genre-varied collection of recordings and original scores for film, television, and gaming. Colin is here with us to discuss the score for Color Out of Space. Hi, Colin. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Hi, Max. Thanks for having me. What exactly is the sonic representation of a cosmic alien color? The first step was that cosmic color, was that sound. Just a generalized idea the aesthetic. If you're talking about something that is extraterrestrial in nature and communicates some sort of extra-dimensional level, to do that, my initial experimentations were with high-density recordings. My first move was to take recordings of coral reefs, which at their core are just high-density montages of clicks and clacks and wheezes and groans. I took about six or seven of these and then overlapped them on top of one another and ran them each through various processes and harmonic generators and came up with something that approaches music somewhere between the concept of music and sound design and that became the cosmic color sound that became the um, the bed some of them uh, more conventionally orchestral uh, and some of them keeping with the spirit of that transmogrification of the natural into the very distinctly unnatural that bed got built upon by me using various saxophones, played in different unconventional ways. Extended technique, utilizing the same or similar processes and treatments electronically to inhabit, blend those instruments with the sound of the coral reefs, then uh, became something that bloomed and grew the cosmic alien color that you were trying to sonically represent ended up being somewhere between magenta and hot pink. <laughs> you read that, huh? <laughs> For me, I had some sense of what things would visually uh, manifest themselves as, but largely I was tracking to picture pre-effects, so uh, this was all my imaginings were based mostly on speaking with Richard and talking about his ideas and his concepts for what this was doing, how this would be imagined and how it would ultimately be uh, manifest. But the crux of it really was the natural made unnatural. And so there are quite a few sounds which populate the score overall that give it this cosmic otherworldly sensibility to it but which are, first and foremost, in their foundation, very much of this earth and sounds from nature.
first one that you'll hear besides the choral in the first track of the soundtrack release, what sounds like a, a cry of some strange alphorn or something that rings above the orchestra. And that actually is, is the, the bugle of a bull elk in rut. That started out the rest of these experimentations where I would take things like an elk bugle, a rutting bison groan. I think there's few key moments where the location calls stretched and you know pushed and pulled, manipulated the uh, sandhill crane through various different processes. So that was the starting point and these experimentations in transmogrified natural sounds were little devices used to twist and, and turn things uh, over the course of the score playing out. So as the composer of this score, you've got the sound design aspect, and then you're also the featured player playing saxophone and other wind instruments, synth, Tibetan bowls, Fender Rhodes. I utilize as much of my um, proficiency as possible whenever I do a score. On this one, I played every instrument with the exception of the strings. The um, violins, violas, cellos, contrabasses were played by my friend Matt Combs. I love to explore not only the conventional aspects of the instruments that I play, but also the very unconventional. And as you said, much of my solo work and what I've been known for is an extended technique and a very arpeggiatic way of continuous playing while circular breathing. And so that's something that makes an appearance in much of my work to film. I don't tend to use conventional or traditional synthesizer arps. I go for things that are based in my own instruments, although I do use a fair amount of synth on this one and synthetically altered saxophones. But I also play a lot of piano throughout the course of it, and as you mentioned, the Tibetan bulls make a big appearance here. What was your workflow like? It was very quick coming into things. I think when I, when I was brought in, uh, we were just a couple weeks away from uh, locked picture. And so in those two weeks, I developed all of the major themes um, and aesthetic and then really hit the ground running. And so over the course of of two months, we had a fantastic back and forth where I was sending things and Richard and I have a a really good rapport. Things that he's seeing that I'm not um, are easily uh, illuminated uh, for me and vice versa. And and so finding our way to our finished score was truly collaborative. And it was the kind of the best way that these things can go where all of his input over the course of those months truly made all of my initial instincts even better and allowed me to find some things that I had seen clearly and some things that were new to me and and were part of the challenge to discover throughout the course of the process. I've really loved working with Richard and I love the music and film. It was immense fun. So let's go over some of the tracks. The opening is West of Arkham. Mm -hmm. It's one of my favorites. That one at its core is an instrument that is fairly new to me called a tubax. It's a newly imagined build of a contrabass saxophone and it is a brilliant instrument that encapsulates the best of both worlds of the saxophone and 
clarinet family. It's still a, a saxophone in its nature and, and acoustically, but the math of it works in such a way so that the flare of the tubing is much more gradual, and so the tone of it is very centered. It has an amazing responsive quality to its overtones, and so something that just perfect for all sorts of manipulated droning. So that is where everything starts in that piece. As I said before, that call, that horn cry in the top that rings above it all is actually an elk. And then throughout the midst of that, you'll hear a bed of airy flutes that are recorded specifically to pick up more on the air than on the tone and EQ'd in such a way. So that breath timbre is coming through the calling card of the alto saxophone in arpeggio throughout and the strings playing a slowed down kind of ghostly variation of the theme of the color that will come eventually in the movie when the meteorite uh, hits down. The Gardeners has a deep melodic power and a melancholy to it. And Richard really wanted our Gardener theme, theme of the protagonist family that ultimately becomes completely unhinged. This represents something very terrestrial, very quaint, very human. And so we start with chamber ensemble and muted piano, and we're just coming into this family who is in various states of unrest and sadness and trying to start things out anew. That was really the task. The gardener's theme just needed to do those things. It needed to be something that presented a very quaint American family who at its heart was not well. started from just improvisations on piano. That basic, simple, lilting refrain was gotten, and then all the melodies built around that. Would you say the cue contact is where the score's identity really comes to the fore? Well, contact is where the theme, referring to that twinkly, dense, writhing color sound that I spoke of earlier, a very, very simple refrain on the Fender Rhodes through a few different devices. You first hear it in ghostly form in the strings in the first scene and then doesn't actually hit home in its true form until that scene. And so yes, that's when the seed is sown and the cat is let out of the bag and everything from then on has a cosmic color to it and is all heading in one direction. about the cue drawing the lightning drawing the lightning is it's a space where early on we've gotten the sense this is not a thing of beauty this is not a, a friendly collaborator this is a scene wherein the beauty and the majesty of this entity or this phenomenon isn't quite understood yet the dark side of it maybe not quite understood and so this is a moment where we get a combining of the gardener theme with the color theme into something that is foreboding, 
but not quite horrific yet in its nature. It's still something that is strangely alluring. It's a turning point, an early phase in the relationship with that antagonist. Dinner's Ready begins conventionally enough, but using your textures and sounds and dynamics, the track radiates the force of an alien presence as it moves along. Dinner's Ready is maybe my favorite. <laughs> so simple, and just like you said, it, it's just a straight line, and I always appreciate scenes and cues that are simply a straight line, because there's really just one thing that that scene is doing, and that is leading to the moment of finger being accidentally chopped off. And the main device is there. We've got all of our droning strings, vocals, bending upwards very, very slightly and gradually. And then a kind of a chorus of counterpoint rhythmic piano being played very percussively. And then in the midst of it, those cranes that I spoke of. So that's what gives the overall track, especially right in the last 10 seconds, that incredibly disjunct not misleading, but it certainly isn't. It's pointing in a general direction, but not exactly at a specific spot. What I tend to try to do with suspense cues in general is to point in a general direction, but never at a specific place so that people don't know when the hit is coming. I found that the, the device of those cranes was absolutely perfect, and I used them in a few other places in the movie for similar effect, but I don't think ever as much as in that spot. Taken unfolds with pulsing, industrial sounds, which creates an uneasy feeling. Good. At that point, um, we're really out the door. The whole of the narrative, we know exactly where this thing is going. We know what direction we're going, and we know that this is not going in a pleasant direction at all. Any semblance of our gardener taken is really the last step fully in that direction. It is one of the next major moves. The cue peaches. Oh, I love peaches. <laughs> I love that. I love that cue so much. That was the most fun thing to do to score just because of Nick Cage's performance is so absolutely precious. It's perfect. At the screening, people laughed at a moment right before it, so they, it covered up one of what I think is his best, or two of what I think are his best jokes. He does yell the word peaches at the trees, which I adored and made me laugh so many times. And then at the very end, his line, you do that very well, Tracy Peach, had to be something that I've watched hundreds of times. It wasn't a cue that I needed to do a lot of work to. It's just something that I liked to play over and over again and make sure it was all, it was all finished because I liked it so much. At its core, it's really just the Gardner-themed piano that's been twisted and turned and manipulated in certain ways to be distorted to mirror what's happening in the Gardner's tomato uh, plot. And then around it are populated strings, which have been similarly twisted and turned. And actually, uh, the, the main 
quote-unquote melodic device in it. The flourishes are all a uh, tenor saxophone that is soloing around the piano movement, like something that is having become truly cosmic. Stranded begins in a traditional way, but I get a feeling of claustrophobia and chaos. Stranded is it's exactly that. It's the moment where we... Um, resigned to the fact that there's no getting out of this, there's no escaping it, and they are truly trapped. And so I thought of it as, as a lament. It's a giving up and a giving in to that whole dark force and dark narrative. That one along with, I believe, the next one, or shortly thereafter, Alpacalypse, are more of these somber maladies, these um, melancholy dirges that make up a little bit of the latter half of the film. tell us about City Hall. City Hall is one of the first things I did for the film actually and luckily it found a perfect home. The confluence of two lines that beginning there is a combination of two things an alto saxophone and a bass saxophone both played in a repetitive arpeggiatic way and both run through similar processes but for separate results. It was just a very, very simple kind of serpentine piece. It felt Lovecraftian at its core to me because it just has this feeling of betentacled sort of uh, madness. It burns is in reverse emotionally and gets chaotic. It burns is in the film as this score is developing and mirroring the film. We're really now into a lot of action a lot of movement and very, very quick change-ups in terms of beats and setting and character. As those things are happening quicker and quicker, so is all the pace of the development of music. And so these are cues where music has to have these big swings. I track entirely to picture, and so I try to sew everything into every bit of movement that is on screen. And so if there's a flourish that one notices, if there's a moment of surge, even in certain takes of certain instrumentations, those things are almost always planned because I was tracking those instruments to the picture and saw something something in the picture that needed to be reacted to. It Burns is really when the last act is starting in full throttle. We're getting towards the climax. seems like a collage of industrial sounds. The industrial sound, the the what sounds like a big industrial synth arp and all of the percussion is actually just one recording of that instrument I talked about in the very beginning. So coming full circle, that instrument, the tubax, the contrabass saxophone is here. Whereas in the past, in other cues, I've talked about things being highly affected, something like the tenor saxophone in Peaches is highly affected. This really is, there's nothing more than a bit of 
compression, just overdriving and saturating the sound, and, but the resultant aggressive tone of it all and industrial quality of it all is just coming out of the mechanics of that instrument just being a little bit exaggerated and then ultimately you've got the color theme in its full manifestation played by a synthesizer um, from the 70s called the Lyricon and violins and violas yeah and is the climactic piece of the film and the soundtrack Reservoir, it almost seems like it's a suite over seven and a half minutes long. You've got ambient sections and bass sax and noise and a lot of harmonics. Reservoir is that denouement. It's the last bit where we have a recalling of West of Arkham, where we have that elk cry out over the, the mountains again. We've got the low drones, the strings echoing the themes that have all populated the rest of the film. And then we roll into credits, and so there's a few things that happen as reprisals. Unencumbered color arpeggio from that tubex comes back, heavy strings all around it playing the themes, you know, then blends into some of the pre-color music that happened before the contact cue, and then ultimately with something that is only alluded to very, very briefly in the middle of the score, but really just never got a chance to be present on film, this ghostly choir that just meanders its way out through the end credits, something that I was looking for a place that would be perfect for it, but really the perfect place for it is really after all of this has happened and it just sings us out. Alan Stetson, congratulations on your work for Color Out of Space. It's a great soundtrack and we appreciate you taking some time to discuss it with us. Thanks a lot. No problem, Max. 